The Scream Kings are in no way responsible for any encounters with the paranormal, extraterrestrial abductions, eldritch insanity, hauntings, curses, hexes, demonic possessions, cryptozoological sightings, or any loss of sleep that may result from listening to this podcast. Podcast. I'm Nathaniel Darkish. And this is Max George. And we've got an awesome episode planned tonight. Yeah, we have a very special guest, uh, Jason Zinneman. Uh, could you introduce yourself? Yeah, thank you for having me on the show. Uh, yeah, my name is Jason Zinneman. I cover comedy for the New York Times, and I wrote a book about a 70s horror called Shock Value, How a Few Eccentric Outsiders Gave Us Nightmares, Conquered Hollywood, and Invented modern horror. Yeah, uh, quite the title, but I, I, I'd love it. Before we, we get into the book and kind of, you know, the, the topics there, uh, how did you first get into horror? Yeah, what what drew you to the genre? It's the horror story behind you. Yeah. Right, the horror origin story, the, the, uh, the backstory, the, the sinister backstory. Um, I think like a lot of, a lot of kids, I got, you know, I got into horror really young, but my first memories were, you know, I'm, I'm in my, you know, I grew up before the, you know, the internet, and uh, so the way you found out about scary movies is somebody's older brother told them, like somebody's older brother of in my first grade class told them the plot to Friday the 13th, and they told it to me. And then, you know, you'd be like, oh, you gotta find out what the plot is of Friday the 13th Part 2. And then they would come back, and that was, they would, and you'd sort of hear, and you know, those movies aren't really about plot too much, but I remember yeah. being really interested, one, because my name is Jason, and, right. uh, so I was waiting was, for that to come up. <laughs> yes, I was teased on that for sure, um, as a kid, but also I just remember my first exposure to horror was sort of secondhand, was through, you know, somebody's older brother, or, Going to a video store and looking at the covers of the horror movies, and they always looked way more interesting to me than the other movies there. And there, there's some movies that still, like their their cover is seared into my memory, like uh, April Fool's Day, which has an incredible cover of a woman at a it's like a big party, and she has a. Uh, her hair is her ponytail shaped like a noose, which you can see, but the party can. She's holding a knife behind her back, and so I just remember seeing those, and that really sparking my imagination. And so, I mean, I, that was sort of the first I, I knew it, and I, and you know, I, I always liked scary stuff when I was a kid. My brother was, was also really into, uh, you know, uh, he, he had these books, these Boris Karloff tales of the frightened stories that I loved. Yeah, and then just so you know, when I was old enough to sneak out and see inappropriate movies, I did it. And uh, horror was just my favorite genre as a kid. I mean, I, I grew up sort of smacked out in the slasher era in the 80s. So I, those, those were the movies that, that like, I was first exposed to. And then and then as I got older, I, you know, I, I learned more about the, the movies that I eventually wrote a book about in the 70s, which, which uh, you know, I sort of argue would really kind of change the game. I mean, there's, there's, there's other sort of key moments in my origin. So, I mean, like, I think Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer stands out 
I mean, that that movie really messed me up when I was a kid. I saw it in a friend's basement, and it was one of those things where it just it wasn't that it wasn't it wasn't exactly scary. It was just incredibly disturbing. disturbing. Yeah, disturbing. Just, just it rattled around in my brain and 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 bothered me. And and you know, I think horror fans, people listening to this podcast, understand this. But to most people, that that would that sounds terrible. That would be why would you want to pursue that? But <laughs> for me. It was it was like oh I want to have that experience again. This is this is this is terrible. I feel rattled and nervous and anxious, and I want to do it. Wait, can I do it? Again? <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. And that's pretty basically been the story, you know. And then the next, you know, until I next thirty years of my life is searching out that feeling. What's interesting is that the older you get, the harder it is to access that. I, I often feel it's like uh, being a horror fan is like being like a like a drug addict. You're, you're, <laughs> you're chasing this high that you'll never quite get. And and, uh, and when you do, get, you like, don't yeah. ever shut up about it. Exactly, exactly. You're you're incredibly annoying, and you really and every once in a while you get close, and it's incredibly thrilling. By the nature of it, you can't really be as the, the hike is not as good as it was when you were a kid, which is sort of the built-in tragedy of being a horror fan. So would you say, fair. like, slasher movies in particular are your favorite genre of horror, or has that evolved over time? That definitely evolves. It definitely evolves. I mean, there were, there was, I like slasher movies a lot, and there were, you know, I, I mean, I did, you know, I really liked Friday the 13th movies, and I liked the Freddy movies, and... I remember being really blown away by um, Silent Night, Deadly Night, the movie the, with Santa, the, uh, which was controversial back in the day because it had a circular dress up of Santa Claus. And it was actually like, it's a cheap movie, but it was, it's really well made. It's, be- it's like really cleverly shot and the point of view shot's really good. But, but, but anyways, once I, once I sort of expanded my realm of interest and I started watching the movies that the people who made those slasher movies were inspired by, you know, then including, you know, the old classic universal horror, you know, the, which I like quite a bit and Hitchcock. And, but then I really fell in love with, with these seventies movies, you know, like Texas Chainsaw Massacre and Carrie and, and then the you know, late eighties as well. Night Living Dead and Halloween and Rosemary's Baby. The, the, those are, the, that's, you know, sort of to the extent that my book there's an implicit argument that, you know, people don't like or do like or whatever. Is that, is that this is the, the greatest, scariest era for, for horror and that the, the tropes that were invented in this incredibly fertile era of horror from like 68 to the end of the 70s had this massive impact not only on other movies, but on, mm-hmm. you know, our sort of vocabulary of fear, which means not just like political advertisements and things you you see you uh, you see in the culture, but also even like our, our nightmares. So that's a powerful thing. And you think of like oh, some of these movies that were made in you know quickly in the seventy and cheaply, you know, ha- are still alive in people's subconscious now. So I guess along those lines, we can kind of talk about seventies horror a little bit more. So so I guess what about that era? Do you think made it? such a, a fertile ground for horror to become something that, you know, moving away from the hammer and the universal eras to something new? Well, it's a great question. And I have like a lot of little pet theories. I mean, I think it's worth 
saying, like, first, like, how the, it was different, like you mentioned Hammer. I think these movies in the, that we're talking about, they're diverse, but they have, they share some things. I think horror generally became much more realistic. It became uh, much more about, you know, the fear of, at the prom, or the fear of, uh, going to the beach or the fear of being uh, pregnant or real estate fears or these kind of things as opposed to, you know, being set in some Victorian house and uh, having a costume drama, etc. So it became more realistic. The, the main monster became, you know, a serial killer as opposed to a Dracula or a werewolf, etc. And they became much darker. There was many more un- unhappy endings. And I think there are products to some degree of the political climate you know, I think there's been a lot written about that, about how good horror comes out of bad times. So, you know, Vietnam, Watergate, etc., that produced Great Period in Horror, and, and the Depression produced this Great Period in Horror with this classic Universal movies. I actually don't – I think there's a grain of truth to that, or I think there's some truth to that, but I'm not uh, – I, I think it's often overstated. And, and, you know, my book, I did a lot of reporting on these – how these movies got made, and I don't actually think – that first of all, there's, there's a lot of great horror made in in, in periods other than these. I I actually think that there were certain circumstances about how they were made, and I think there were certain cultural ideas that that sort of came to the fore at this point that contributed to making them so potent. I mean, interestingly, if you talk to all the people who make these movies, they didn't. When I started writing the book, my what I imagined was. They all knew each other, that like, oh, you know, George Romero and Wes Craven and Carpenter sat around and hung out and traded ideas. And and there's some of that, but the truth is, compared to today when there's horror conventions and there's the internet where everyone's talking to each other, these people really didn't have as much contact um, as artists today. You know, Wes Craven was working, especially early on, in New York, and Toby Hooper was working in in Texas, and, you know, William Freakin was working in, you know, Chicago and L.A., and, and Romero was in Pittsburgh. They're really in all these different places. Now, they did sort of have exchange of ideas, however, through the movies, and to another degree, through, like, the, like, budding horror zines that, again, were much more in its infancy than, than today, and so they did end up from interviewing and talking to people, they, they, they had a couple things in common, one of which is that I think for the first time really like all, all most of the main players were deeply conversant in H.P. Lovecraft. And that, and especially, you know, uh, people like John Carpenter and um, Daniel Bannon. Um, and H.P. Lovecraft, you know, who, who you know, had been dead for a while, but the, the stories, he had written a bunch of, very influential horror stories, but he also written a book um, about horror in which he makes, you know, he, his first sentence, I, I would say if he were to like boil down like the topic sentence, like the main thesis statement of all of these movies, um, it's that the, and I'm like paraphrasing his sentence, but essentially is that the, the oldest uh, emotion of mankind is fear and the the greatest fear is fear of the unknown. And if you look at all these movies, they well, let me say one other thing. The, the the challenge for a horror film, if you believe this is true, is how do you if you maintain the unknown, if that's the scariest thing, throughout your movie, because throughout the movie your audience is waiting to see what the threat is, essentially what the monster is. 
And each, in each of these movies, these, these artists came up with incredibly creative answers to this question. But what they shared was a belief in the terrifying nature of the unknown, which interestingly, like a lot of the subsequent generations, a lot of, a lot of people have forgotten this idea. A lot of the sequels to these movies and the remakes of the movies forget this idea. They over-explain things. They give backstories, etc. So that's one, one thing. I also think, and this is kind of like a, a, a crazy half-cock theory, but I, I sort of believe it, is that, you know, this is before horror movies were, um, really big business, and it was certainly before horror movies were respectable. Like now, we live in this time when horror movies get nominated for Oscars, and um, critics love, you know, Jordan Peele, and they, they talk in Ari Aster, and they talk about how this, these movies are high art, but to really understand what makes these movies great, you have to really un, you know, look back at this period, the late 60s and the late 70s. If you read the press about horror at the time, and if you talk to these uh, horror makers, you know, they all say the same thing, which is, is that this is a, a genre that had about as much respect as pornography. People really, it was an embarrassing thing to do. You didn't want to tell your parents that you were making scary movies. This was not, this was something that you, not that you wanted to do, but you had to do, either because of an urge or because you, or just as often, you needed to make some money and, you know, a lot of the reasons for making these classic horror films were frankly just financial, right? And now it's a big question that I try to answer in my book. How do these, this great art form come from all these crass commercial impulses? And what I actually believe is that there's a certain kind of guilt and shame that a lot of these guys had about what they were doing that finds its way into, into the movies and makes them even more queasy and effective. I think Wes Craven is like the great best example. A movie like Last House and the Last. Wes Craven was a deeply comes from a deeply religious background, and you know he was doing things. Uh, he and he was very like embarrassed to be doing this movie. And there's something about that movie, Last House and the Last, which is like *Coming Forth to the Serial Killer*. It doesn't, it's not necessarily the scariest movie, but it's unsettling in this way that movies didn't even attempt before that and transgressive and it's true of a lot of those movies of that period that they just they, they have this queasy ickiness almost like that, a dirtiness kind of feel to exactly it, you know? a dirtiness and I and that to me is you know I think a key component of the genre right and I think it's sort of it's not the whole thing it's not the thing, but there there's a there's a ruthlessness to these movies that I think as great as, I think the horror genre is actually doing quite well right now, but that quality is a little more absent than it was back then. So, so anyway, that's a long rambling answer with a bunch of different explanations, but, but that, that's a few. You mentioned kind of the environment around the time kind of fueled this new direction in horror. Do you think that there was anything like Big, like what was the biggest cultural impact that was going on that really kind of steered the 80s, you know, golden age of horror that we were talking about? Well, the, the 80s or the 70s? The 70s, I'm sorry. The 70s. I mean, in terms of like world events, it's, you know, probably Vietnam. He talked to a lot yeah. of people. You know, Toby Hooper and Craven. Craven saw those movies as, um, you know, essentially a war. You know, there was a, 
a kind of political edge, the idea that uh, all these people were dying, but the news reports weren't showing images of violence. It's so in, at odds with what's going on now that you see all this stuff all the time. But so there was almost a political impulse to like show you violence, that this was a thing that the government wasn't letting you do, right? So that was a big thing. And that was true for, it was also, you know, just an ang- a countercultural aspect that the, the Vietnam War opened up that, that uh, young people were, um, you know, didn't understand what was going on, thought that their old people were radically out of touch and, and were sending young people to die. And you see this sort of generational conflict play out even in movies like The Exorcist, which has a lot of different meanings to it, but, you know, one of which is it's, it's a story about a mom who can see something crazy is happening to her daughter and she has no idea what it is. And that's the way a lot of older people felt in, uh, in this period. I mean, we, we talk about, it's funny, we talk about our country now being like divided and clearly is, but when people say, oh, it's unprecedented, it's like, go back and look at the late 60s, early 70s. Things were things were even more fractured, uh, so that, that that was probably the biggest sort of world event. But I think the biggest artistic event was Night of the Living Dead. I mean, that's a movie that every one of these people, like I, you know, if you talk to Rome France, you talk to Carpenter, you talk to Toby Hooper, you talk to um, Brian De Palma, they all remember where they were when they saw that movie. It was like. That was a, that was just like, oh, for many reasons. One, because it was, it was the gore. Two, because it was so, it's a great movie. But three, it was so obviously a cheap, independent movie. And it's hard to remember, but like, you know, the, you know, this was not that far from the studio system. It just, it seemed incomprehensible to like that you could just pick up camera and make something that had this, you know, really global impact. I mean, that was a movie that first, you know, you know, was played at midnight. Movies and stuff, but then it got picked up by, you know, in France, got these rave reviews from French critics, and, um, so it was really this, this incredibly thrilling and empowering event for artists to see Night of the Living Dead. It also just was like it reinvented the zombie. You know, they, they that was, that, they never had been that kind of zombie before, and, you know, the zombie has you know, become one of the most iconic monsters around. So uh, another thing that I noticed that, you know, that the 70s really uh, focused in on a lot was, you know, this idea of kind of this, like, unknowable evil, but, but you know, like like the demonic and things like that, you know, with The Exorcist and with uh, Rosemary's Baby and, and all of those things. So so I guess, what do you think fueled that? Because, you know, I definitely see the serial killers being kind of the new, you know, humans are doing bad things to each other. So what do you think maybe made uh, the the devil such, such a big hit as well with with the genre? Mm. Devil, that's a, that's a good question. Well, you know, it really... First of all, I think music is a big part of it. The devil, you know, the heavy metal and you know, even the Rolling Stones, there's, the devil was popping. There also were, like, Satanist movements were, were, were a thing back then. But it really starts with... Uh, in, in the genre with Rosemary's Baby, you know, it, it sort of turbocharges with the um, the Exorcist. And it's interesting to compare those two because Rosemary's Baby was written by Ira Levin, who was a, a Jewish New Yorker who, you know, I don't think believes in the devil. 
um, and was and it was made by Roman Polanski, you know, who uh, I'm almost sure was an atheist, uh, and um, and 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 didn't consider, you know, he wasn't making a religious movie. Um, he was just trying to find a hokey, you know, some, not hokey. He was trying to find something scary, and you know, he dug into the kind of, you know. The, the, the treasure chest of horrible archetypes, horrible archetypes, or Eliza Levendon and then Candle of the Devil. But, but, um, The Exorcist is a, is a much different story because The Exorcist, it was directed by William Friedkin, who was a secular filmmaker who was, wanted to make just like a thriller. But it was written by William Peter Blatty, who was a deeply devout evangelical who wanted to make a religious movie. His idea was that if you, Prove to people that you know the demons and the devil exist, and they'll believe that God exists. And he had this whole sort of religious architecture behind that movie. And this was a movie he, be, you know, he 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 deeply believed that that movie was a religious movie, and that that the the story of the making of that movie is the argument between him and Friedkin. Who, are, who see it as two different things, and that argument kind of played out over the next couple of decades. But I, I do think that Blatty's conviction that this stuff was real, that demons were real, made that gave that movie a kind of realism that made it more powerful and also made it symptomatic of the best movies of that era, which is what we talked about, the, the realism of it. It wasn't just, as opposed to Rosemary's Baby, which is a lot of, like, hokum about the devil, the... You know, The Exorcist, you know, I mean, that movie, that's a movie that really had convictions the devil was real and that religion can be awe-inspiring and terrifying. And that's why it had such a massive impact on why people were, you know, fainting at theaters and, you know, freaking out. I mean, it was, that, that Exorcist really was just, a, just like a huge cultural moment that transcended horror. It got, you know, it was one of the first horror movies to, of that period to really get a huge number of Oscar nominations. It was taken really seriously and really changed the um, the, the kind of credibility of the genre. So that, and then that spawned more stuff about the demonic. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think I think that's a, a great point. Just the sincerity behind the the religious fervor of the film. Yeah, I can see that really like really connecting with people, or you know, and and, and even if you're not religious, you can at least understand being passionate about something and, and believing in something. Completely. And and, and you know, it's interestingly, um, I don't have all this information on my fingertips like I used to, but you know, the there were a lot of concrete artistic choices that. They argued over that Blatty, who was the religious one, and and freaking was not, and they they had to do with um, like the way the movie ended and how the, the priest and you know the movie was recut. Basically, Blatty lost the the battle but won the war. He the movie was recut when it was released in like two thousand something because freaking freaking I think even converted. So for both of them. The, I mean, the word you use is exactly right. They both had a real sincerity about the religious import of that movie. It was, it was not just like a horror show. And, and I do think that's true generally of, what's interesting about you look at all those movies, and again, if you report it out, is that there is an element of the people making these movies that are just doing it for like cheap thrills and, or to make a quick buck or for sensationalism or, you know, as my name of my book is, shock value. But there's also an element 
that are deadly serious. So, and, and the story of making of these movies, as opposed to the ones today, which are the different story, is the battle between these two. It's not, it's not the story of like one willful artist fighting the, the evil suits at the, in the, in the studio. It's the story of, uh, these two parts, uh, fighting it out. So in, in Last House on the Left, you have, um, Wes Craven, who is not only would he come, he comes from a religious background, but he isn't religious himself. But he is like a very serious, um, you know, art film. He sees himself as like a guy in, working in the tradition of this Bergman. And the movie's based on Emil Bergman. He wants to make, and also he's making a political film about Vietnam. So he thinks this is deadly serious stuff. And the producer, uh, Sean Cunningham, who went on to make Friday uh, the 13th, is just like, look, we just want to, you know, show some titillation and exploitation and some pretty girls and some blood and some bodies. And their argument is the story of that movie, which then becomes the story of um, Friday the 13th. Um, and um, so that, that's, that to me is, is really important to these movies, that they have the elements of both, the kind of like cheap thrills, but also the deadly, serious conviction of trying to, to, uh, to really mess you up. Yeah, I can definitely see that with with pretty much all of these films that that you cover in in the book. Where, yeah, there there's certainly you know a, a measure of like very serious trying to as artfully as, as you can approach the genre, but then also, yeah, kind of relying on the fact that like if you want people, you know, if you want those butts in the seats in the theater, then you have to to have lots of blood and maybe some boobs and you know whatever it takes to, yep. to get people there. Yeah, sure. No, totally. It's a, and, and and you need well, you don't need, but I kind of think that like the in in great uh, the the history of American movies, the, my favorite American movies are a marriage of those two elements. And that's not just true in horror. If you look at like The Godfather, it's like a trashy based on a trashy novel, a trashy gangster novel, a, a kind of a pop boiler. But then you have Francis Ford Coppola, who is this, you know, really uncompromising um, director. Auteur. Who exactly a tour, and there's this marriage of commerce and art that is really, I think, deeply American. Um, and um, I think that really plays itself out in these horror movies, um, in, in the sense that they're like the, the, these extremes, because they really are just like they're parts of it are really trashy, but there's also parts of it that are that there's some serious artistic ambition, and um, and the the potent ones are, are really married these two sides. And I think the word we've used here is the sincerity of it all. That you know they do want to create a piece of art. They have all these kind of other things on their plate, and they sincerely give us something that's a masterpiece. And you can you can feel that in these movies. I was just gonna say, and, and and treating the the trashiness almost as a tool, in yeah. you know, to, to make your art. It's not a shit yes. or a gimmick. It's a a medium almost. <laughs> no, I think like I think you're right, and I think on a concrete level, like just on like I think it was Carpenter who who, who said this, and and uh, John Landis also said this, which is like a common strategy for these movies is the beginnings of them create a very ordinary, relatable world. Like suburbia and Halloween and girls talking about whatever the prom and carrier, you know, the, just like a very relatable, ordinary, conventional world. 
And then once you've established that and got people's buy-in, then you throw this crazy supernatural monster, whatever it is, at you. But it doesn't, if you just start with the crazy supernatural stuff, um, then it doesn't have the same impact. Um, so there's an interesting thing with like horror, you know, now I cover comedy and comedy has a lot in common with horror and it's a lot about surprise and it's about like setup and punchline. And in horror, you have that same dynamic except the setup is like creating this stable world and then upending it with some craziness. Yeah, in, in a good horror movie, you're gripping the, the seat, and then in a good comedy, you're laughing. Right, right. No, it's a very, it's like a, it's a cruel <coughs> metric for success. It's like, if you're not laughing, it, it didn't work, and if there's not some screams, <laughs> it's like, you know, it's probably not the biggest, scariest movie of all time. And, uh, and there is this kind of like building of tension, which they both have in common, right? That's the they, they both rely on the slow building tension and then a a release. And just like in comedy, there's some, like, one-liners and there's some long stories. In horror, you have the jump scare, the quick jump scare, or you have the slow burn. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there's some people who sort of look down their nose at the at the jump scare, and there's some people who prefer, prefer it to the slow burn, but, you know, it's all part of the... It's all part of the fun. Like they all, they all have their place. So one thing that I'm, I have been wanting to ask you is just, you know, simply, you know, who, who did you get to interview when you were writing this book? You know, who uh, did you get to rub elbows with in this, in this uh, horror world that, uh, that everyone should be jealous of? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I really tried to tell, I mean, I really saw this book fundamentally as a work of reporting first. Like, I want that, so I talked to everyone who was alive, um, and, I mean, who wasn't, you know, banned from coming to the United States, like Roman Polanski, <laughs> um, so, you know, Craven, and Carpenter, and Toby Hooper, and all, you know, also, I mean, incredibly valuable were not just the actors who I talked to, but, you know, cinematographers, and the producers, and you know, kind of unheralded character who I kind of make a case for in this book is a Dan O'Bannon, who Absolutely. is a writer of Alien. You know, he, he his, his his credit was sort of taken by if you if you didn't direct, you didn't get any credit, and he he fell out of fashion in the movie, so he didn't get back to the sequels. But he really is the the key the artistic figure for that movie, and I spent a lot of time with him before he died. Since my book came out, there's been like a, a lot of rediscovery of O'Bannon. There was a big documentary about Alien that came out last year that gave me a lot of credit. So he was he was a big part. You know, what I learned was that horror was a lot smaller world back then. So O'Bannon who made Alien, Carpenter, who made Halloween, those were probably, like, the two major movies in the late 70s, two of, like, the, you know, the top four most important horror movies. They went to USC together in the late 60s and made their first movie together, Dark Star, and then they had a falling out. So, you know, one narrative of the book is to tell the story of their falling out, and to do that, I had to go back to the people who went to USC film school with them, which is a class of, you know, 25, 26, 27, something like that. And, you know, I tried to find as many people as I could. So I probably talked to like 15 or 20 people to really recreate what it was like then. So that was, you know, I really tried to be exhaustive with reporting on that. And then, you know, the same thing for 
uh, everyone I could find, of course, on Rosemary's Baby. I talked to George Romero before we did. I mean, one thing that's actually, there's a lot about this book that I really am, you know, proud of and happy about, but the thing that, the thing that I'm most proud of, and I wouldn't have guessed this, is that, you know, I was like, so many of these people have died since the book came out. And so that means that so many of them, you know, did their last long interview with me, or one of the last. And when they died, you know, I ended up writing the obituary, you know, the kind of critics essay, or I was consulted about. And so it was a kind of, they were sort of old by the time I got to them, which I think plays into my fashion, plays to my favorite, because they, they were more open to talk. They were sort of, had a lot of them trouble getting work. But I mean, since, you know, since my book came out, you know, I've written critical essays about, you know, you know, when Toby Hooper died, I, I, you know, the New York, I had a big story about how Texas Chainsaw Massacre is one of the greatest movies ever made, which is not the kind of thing you would have read in the New York Times, you know, a decade ago. And you know, last year we found out that um, Halloween, the New York Times never even reviewed the original Halloween. So I reviewed the original Halloween last year after this was like, it came out in 78, and we were trying to review it last year. So, um, but he's actually the last one still alive. I mean, Carpenter isn't still alive, but, but Hooper is, has passed away. Romero has passed away. O'Bannon has passed yes. away. Wes Craven has passed away, who I was a huge, I mean, I talked to him many, many, many times. And then I'm not even counting all the people like Herschel Gordon Lewis, who was like a predecessor to these guys who did all these like original gore movies in the 60s. Um, died. The guy like Forrest Ackerman, who founded the fanzine, the original fanzine, Famous Monsters of Filmland, which all these guys read. Past, I, I was, I, I talked to him, you know, not long before he died. So, anyways, th- th- that was really, I'm really grateful that I, w- I was able to get to these people that, uh, when I did, because you, you just literally couldn't have, write, you couldn't write this book now. That was definitely something that struck me as I was reading. It's just, you know, I, I would read about, all, you know, all of these these legends of horror and I was like, man, yeah, like you, you really hit the gold mine in terms of the timing and everything like that. Just really had, you know, had to, to have, you know, access to these guys. And I, I think that was awesome because yeah, you know, like you said that, you know, they've impacted pretty much all of the filmmakers that have come after them in the genre. Right. You know, everyone, everyone. Yeah. Is, and it was just dumb luck. Them. Yeah. Dumb luck. I mean, I never, I, I, I uh, a, a more experienced reporter might have been like, oh, William Peter Blatty is old and he's going to die in the next five years, so someone should go to his house in Georgetown. And, you know, which, you know he's like a, made a fortune on The Exorcist and has become kind of like a, you know, eccentric old guy. But I didn't. I mean, I was just, it was, it was my first book, and I, I had... You know, the origin of it is I read this book by Peter Biskin called Easy Rider Raging Bulls, which is about the same period, but about Hollywood movies like The Godfather and Scorsese and Spielberg and all those people. And it was about sort of the revolution in Hollywood at the time and um, a deeply reported book about that. And I, I love the book, but I thought to myself, oh, this is a great book, but none of the movies that I really love uh, are in this book. So I was mm-hmm. like, oh, I, I just want to, I want to read that book. I want to read the Easy Rider Raising Bulls and Horror, which is basically the elevator pitch for the book. And so then I just wrote the book that I wanted to read. Well, that's the way to do it. Now that we've kind of talked 
all over 70s horror. I'm, I'm really curious about your, your tastes in, in more modern horror films and, you know, what, what are some standout uh, pieces of, of horror, you know, basically in the decades after the 70s. <laughs> right, yeah, right, I'm right, also right. interested. I used to be a little bit more snotty about, like, contemporary horror. Um, and, and, um, but. And after and, and interviewing all of these big hitters, I would be too. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I, I, I was kind of protective of these guys, and I would, but I gotta say, the way, and you know, I do have this whole, the, the, the whole pet theory about, like, now these guys who make these movies, you talk to, you know, these directors today, they're not embarrassed to be making Hereditary or, even like going back further, Eli Roth is not embarrassed to be making Hostel. He's proud to be making Hostel. This is exactly what he wants to be doing. They're, and they're not like these, you know, kind of independent guys with, with not, not much money against the odds doing it. Like now they're like people who went to film school or who are well off or who are, you know, they're, they're, they're a different kind of, they have a different demographic. That said, the horror kind of had so much success. In part built on the on the work of these people from the seventies. Again, such a big business, Hollywood's thrown so much money at it that it just has had this incredible renaissance. And I think it the genre has certainly changed a lot. There's a lot more kind of prestige horror. There's incredibly I mean, the better acting in, in horror movies today than there ever has been. And I mean I love you know, a guy like Ari Aster is just a spectacular artist. I and mean, I think you know, Hereditary and, and Midsummer. Um, they're not like exactly the bullseye of my taste when it comes to horror, but he's an incredibly ambitious guy doing, you know, unique, beautifully composed scare sequences. We um, often joke that we're an Ari Aster like fan podcast because we absolutely adore <laughs> Hereditary and Midsummer was equally as spectacular. So I'm glad you said that. <laughs> which ones do you which ones do you, do you like better? Oh, hereditary. I hereditary. Yeah, for sure. Hereditary, yeah, the better of the two. What, but they're I, both I agree. masterful. They're, they're they're both masterful, and they're and in some ways, like just, just the idea of like doing this horror in the daylight is so audacious. And yeah. in this one like contained, it's like almost like a stage set. It's crazy that what he, what he set out to do. But also, what I like about um, both of them, but particularly hereditary. Is that they're these very they, they are these very uh, classy movies with that are about you know certainly about um, the hereditary is about Greece these excellent actors and but they also have these moments these like real horror movie punch to the gut moments I mean hereditary's got like the moment early on with the kid and and then the end also but but I mean like you know I really like also. Like, I think probably my favorite horror movie the last couple of years is Don't Breathe. Oh, that's a good uh, one. Which is a lot less classy than Hereditary. <laughs> I mean, it's the end of it. It's really Turkey gross. Based. It's not for anybody. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's it's not for everybody. But I like that. Like, I like that ending. I like, like, that was a movie that if it had a different, if it had a more tasteful ending, it probably would have gotten better reviews. But it would, to me, that was it announced itself as a movie that cared more about really grossing you out and, and, and it being horror. And I just think that whole, also just the whole conceit of it. And it's interesting. There's been like a couple movies set in Detroit, which were incredible. It Follows and Don't Breathe. Or two it of my Follows favorites. is 
one of the most underrated, I think, modern films right now. It's so good. I forget how good it is when you watch it. It's incredible. In fact, I, I the first time I saw it, I didn't get it how great it was. I was I, I, mm-hmm. I said it's okay, and then I, I went back and watched it again, and I realized how ingenious it is. And, it's, and yeah, it's it's absolutely terrifying. And I think it's interesting how you know for so long you had these horror movies that were like Cabin in the Woods, or you're either like in the middle of nowhere in the woods, or there was suburb. Basically, you had to find excuses to get people isolated. So you'd be like in the in the ocean or whatever. And I think it's really clever how these directors have. I don't know if you guys have ever been to Detroit, but you know it's changing a little bit. But Detroit is just the most weird, desolate, post-apocalyptic urban it's landscape. So bizarre. It is it's weird because it used to be so crowded. It used to be like one of the biggest cities in the country and dense and, you know, just bustling economically and culturally and then just completely emptied out. And and so it has these ghosts around and that opening shot of Don't Breathe, which is like a a drone shot where it looks like it's like a – you can't tell what this thing is that's being dragged down the street, but it's it's an urban street, but it's empty. So you're like, is this some kind of post-apocalypse? Is this a zombie thing? And then you realize, oh no, it's it's somebody dragging a dead body, and it's not a post-apocalypse. It's just Detroit. <laughs> <laughs> and so I thought that is like really clever. And then like also just on, on the same length of like on the trashier end, I'm a big fan of Aja, and so I thought Crawl was was satisfying this year. And basically all his movies had something that I I really like. So that's a movie that I, that I I also really like, I like the Babadook. I think that was like, one, I think well, if we look back in the last decade, that was a, a, a game changer. What, what you like? I'm huge into demonology. I love me a good demon oh. and Lucifer and Satan and all of that. That's my jam. Yeah, you should see the program. Um, the Exorcist is, is a huge inspiration for me, but I, I loved Hereditary and specifically how they portrayed like demonic possession and the whole cult of payment that was all very well researched by Ari Aster. Huh. And just kind of a gradual possession that there isn't this cloven hooved horned demon that's hiding in the corner, you know. It it almost reaches that line of is this mental disorder or is this something a little bit more supernatural? So predatory mm. for me by far has been one of my favorites in the last few years, but I love uh, I other good so low. I really, really enjoy. And it's not a perfect film, but the way they kind of depict this descent of madness into the catacombs of France and how that is a parallel to Dante's Inferno and how every kind of level they go down directly mirrors portions of Inferno is pretty cool. Um, mm-hmm. The acting's not the best, but I can get over that. <laughs> right. <laughs> and then one that I just saw recently, it's on Shudder, it's pretty pretty intense and pretty gritty, is Beelzebuth, uh, which oh, is really? a play on the Antichrist versus the second coming of Jesus and kind of this millennia-long battle of who can get to the planet first, Jesus or Satan, huh. uh, factions fighting against each other. And it's, I mean, there's like a a mass murder in a NICU in the first five minutes. And I thought, <laughs> like, oh, my God, what is going on? Where oh, man. I have to check that out. Who, who's the director of that? Um, I can't 
think of it off the top of my head, but I can find out fairly quickly. So I can look it up. Okay. How about you, Nathaniel? I know you're going to uh, say Alien, but pick something else. Well, Alien, of course. <laughs> the original? Yeah, of course. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I, I, I just went to the what, like 40-year uh, anniversary screening of it uh, that the uh, local uh, theater had. And, oh, man. Seeing it on the big screen was holds up. something magical. Yeah, yeah, it's incredible. Yeah, just just the, I don't know, anything with, like, really good practical effects, I'm all about. Um, I, yeah. So I'm, I'm in love with that. Um, I'm also, like, a huge fan of Silence of the Lambs and, like, the Hannibal TV show and, and just, you know, things mm-hmm. dealing with, with, you know, serial killers in, in an interesting way. Let's see, I'm just looking around my room for what I'm, I'm obsessed with the most. Um... I don't know. I, I I like a little of everything. I you know uh, one of my other favorites uh, would be like the film Oculus. Uh, that one uh-huh. really resonated with me. Just the, the way that it was shot, I thought was really interesting, and you know it was a fun supernatural story. But I mean, really, it, as long as it has good writing and and especially if if it has really good effects, I'm there. So right, right, yeah. No, and I feel like it's a good time for that. I mean, there's a lot of really good. Creativity going on. I mean, I think. I mean, yeah. The, uh, Oculus right, is written by Mike Flanagan, and yeah. uh, he, he's like, feel like now. He, what's interesting is like you're in this period where there's so much great television, but for a while there wasn't great horror on, the tel- on, on streaming service. So that that might be starting to change. Although I was yeah. the biggest fan, but it. But I know Haunting Hill House had a, had a, which is Flanagan had a, had a you know, did really well. And his other, his other, with Gerald's Gain, I like actually better. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, he's uh, doing a lot with so the yeah, King King stuff in, in ways that I find refreshing. Yeah, exactly. That's, that's, it will, it will be, I, I think lots of everything else, we'll have to look at like streaming for the future. I mean, Shudder, Shudder has done really great stuff. I mean, my, uh, I don't know if you guys, have you guys seen Dead Wax? No, yeah. I have not. It's, it's uh, original, on Shudder by a guy who I should say full disclosure is a friend of mine, the uh, this guy Graham Resnick, who um, I got to know after writing this book. But uh, it's really a it's an incredible series, and it's sort of the conceit is you know there's this record that it's played, or as legend has it, you die if you hear the record, right? Mm. And okay. and it's set in the world of like vinyl nerds, <laughs> you know, people who are obsessed with, like, finding these obscure records and stuff. And so it, it's, like, it makes sense that the, uh, but anyway, anyways, he, he has, like, a very David Lynch-ian um, aesthetic. And that's the kind of thing where it's, like, quirky in, in its form and might not have gotten made as a feature a decade ago, but now, because of streaming and et cetera, you, you can make it. So there's a, there's a lot of interesting kind of small-scale horror going on um, right yeah. now that's exciting. And and along those lines, you know, one thing that I, I've been really enjoying is, is seeing, like, yeah, the horror podcasts that are coming out that are, you know, creating horror fiction. Like, also from Shudder, the uh, Video Palace, if you're familiar with that at all. I don't know that, actually, no. Oh, it's... It, Excellent. Uh, we actually uh, had the opportunity to talk to uh, one of the creators of that, but uh, it, it's it's also kind of in, entrenched in a, a world of, uh, in this case, VHS collectors, and it's about these yeah mysterious like white blank VHS tapes that can potentially drive you insane. It's, so it's very 
Lovecraftian, and it's but it's you know kind of set up in a in a way serial or something like that, where it's you know an investigative podcast, but you know it's all mm. you know scripted. That sounds great. So I don't know. I I just love the ways that 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 horror is kind of expanding, and you know that that people are able to to make it so accessible. You know, even if you are some you know, no name director with a, a shoestring budget, you can find a way to get your stuff out there. So that's it. that's yeah, part yeah, of what yeah, is no. so exciting to me right now, especially because I, I, I write horror as well, and so it's fun to see as a creator like what could what could happen. So right, right. Do you write screenplays? Do you write fiction, or do you write fiction? Yeah, that's something I'm pretty ignorant about, but it does seem like there's a that's also a booming genre. No, to to an extent, you just, you just have to find the right people, but especially like, like in the kind of the more indie marketplace, like, there is a, a, a real strong presence of, of horror, so. Was there any uh, anything else that, that you wanted to share about horror or just, you know, since since we got you on, on the phone still of, of you know, any, any last shout-outs or, or just anything else that you want to uh, share that you've done? I mean, I feel like I've, uh, I'm, I'm, I've, I've said my piece. I mean, I've, I've had my... Uh, I've written one other book for people who are interested, but it's not about horror. It's about David Letterman's biography of, of him. That was sort of my, my follow-up to this. I, th- I think that's, that's that's the extent of the wares I have to to sell. But yeah, I I I'm, I'm appreciate you guys having me on, and it's always fun talking to informed horror fans. Oh, I say thank you. This was a pleasure. Like, mine's a little bit blown right now. I'm a little starstruck. So thanks for sharing. <laughs> Yeah, and, and yeah, yeah. definitely thanks for being on, and also just thanks for writing the book. It really, I think it opened my eyes to 70s horror in a way that I had kind of been closed off to. You know, I, I for a long time just kind of wasn't really that into 70s horror. Like, there, you uh-huh. know, there were some gems, obviously, you know, Alien and The Exorcist and things like that. But just as a whole, I kind of just associated it more with just like, oh, it's just the the kind of gritty, cheap stuff, and I, I didn't kind of recognize the value of that until I took a, a, another look uh, with your book. So it definitely, I think, gave me a deeper appreciation for a genre I already have a great love for. For those in our audience, definitely pick up shock value. It's worth your time. Well, thank you so much. There's nothing, nothing that an author better for an author to hear, so I, I appreciate that. And it's funny, it's like the uh, now these movies are actually pretty old. You know, they're, they look, some of them look old also. And in the way that the, the movie business is now, you know, they're not all as accessible as other stuff. You know, they're, they're hard to kind of stumble on in a video store as they used to. There, there's, there's a ton of great movies that were made back then that, uh, some of which are being remade, like Black Christmas and all this stuff, but the originals are really worth seeing. Thank you so much for, <laughs> for being on and stay spooky. Need even more Scream Kings? Here's our obligatory shameless social media plug. Follow us on Twitter or Instagram at Scream Kings Pod. You could also email us at ScreamKingsPodcast at gmail.com. Help us reach a wider audience of horror fans by leaving a review on iTunes or by sharing a link on social media. You can also support the show by going to Patreon.com forward slash Scream Kings. Stay spooky.